Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. So welcome again to an episode of True Fiction. I'm Patrick Boggs, and I'm here with my co-pilot, Norbert Yates. Hi. Today, our guest is a man of many talents. He is an actor, comedian, rapper, impressionist, and DJ. Please welcome to True Fiction, Jean-Pierre Jagnoli. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, I really appreciate coming on the show and making time for us today. How are things going tonight? Oh, not too bad. I'm um, working on music right now. So just in the studio, kind of fine tuning some songs I recorded. I just finished recording an album. So I'm just kind of putting the finishing touches on it before I mix and master them. So awesome. Busy doing that. So you rap and uh, I was wondering, well, do you have guests on there? Uh, right now I'm mostly doing a solo thing, uh, cool. but I have worked with other artists and have, uh, features on my, on certain tracks as well. I, I apprenticed under a Sony music producer and he's also a singer. He sings on one of my tracks that, uh, that I'm working on as well. So I do have a little bit of features, but I'm mostly doing solo. It's really hard to be honest, to find people who really are dedicated to the craft and want to do it. People seem to come in and out. We work on some tracks. We record some stuff. Oh, I got to go hang out with my girlfriend. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it's like, are you really serious about it? Because like, you have to put time to, to accomplish something. And I feel like I don't find a lot of people with that kind of drive that really stick to it like I do. So when you uh, record an album or put together an album, do you, is it segmented? Do you have stuff you're, I mean, are you working on all phases at, at one time or do you go, okay, this is my writing time and then you you know a recording time comes after that and then you mix or how, how do you what's your process yeah definitely um i'm definitely very like planned out when i record stuff so the first part is getting together the music i produce music myself so sometimes i'll have production that's my own sometimes i work with other producers and and artists who produce and i use some of their stuff uh, but the first phase is finding the collection of music whether it's producing or finding it through producers i work with uh, the second phase is writing the songs. I like to have it all written. I don't really like to waste studio time when I go in there. When I go in, I want to bang out the tracks, record it, get it done, and kind of do some tweaking, usually while I'm in there. Um, and then once I'm done with that, I usually do the test where, you know, I put it in the car, I put it on the computer, and I test it out on different speakers to make sure the quality and EQ sounds good. Um, and then I usually, what I'm doing now with the current project is just going in, taking out any sounds and any interference, any clicks I may have done, stuff like that, and really make it sound crisp and clean. Um, and after that, I'll put it into another program where I finish the final mixing and mastering phase. So that's kind of my process for working on it. I do all the writing first, get in the studio record, and then kind of take care of all the mixing and stuff after that. So you a Pro Tools guy? Yeah, so uh, yes, very much a Pro Tools guy. I learned Pro Tools when I went to school. I studied radio, TV, and film. Awesome. I had my bachelor's in that. Um, and, you know, I worked at my college radio station. I worked on music. I worked on TV, movies, all kinds of stuff while I was uh, in college. And I learned on Pro Tools, but I also learned in Logic. So I've used Logic as well. Uh, I just prefer Pro Tools for recording vocals and stuff. And I actually do my uh, mixing and mastering in Logic. So I kind of use different programs for different parts of the process. Absolutely. Some are better than others for different parts. Absolutely. Hey, 
when you record and you have a, a track that you're really liking, or if you don't like it, who do you go to? I know you're married and, uh, you know, do you go to your wife or is there somebody else that you have listened to and you know they're going to give you the straight, um, the straight scoop on your, on your music? Yeah, definitely. Uh, my wife's funny enough, not a big fan of rap, although I've written lots of songs for her over the years. <laughs> We've been together and she loves those songs and she loves my type of rap. I'm, I'm more of a socially conscious rapper. So I rap about social issues. I rap about the world. I don't really get into clubs and, you know, drugs and drinking. That's just not who I am as a person. I really like to have a message in my music. Um, so, you know, I, I'm definitely liked even by the non-rap people because of my content, which is nice. I draw in a bigger crowd because I get people from all over the spectrum. Uh, I have used my wife before to get, um, feedback and she knows enough about music, even though she's a rocker chick. Uh, she knows enough about music and has a good ear to be like, oh, I don't, this sounds kind of low or this. So I've definitely got feedback, but I usually go to actually my Sony music producer is a really good friend of mine. We're really close. And I actually bring some stuff to him and get his opinion. If I feel like I just kind of want to see what a professional in the industry thinks of what I'm doing so far. And that's what I did with the current album I recorded. I sent him one of my tracks and he loves everything I'm doing so far. He said, as an artist, he's seen my maturity and growth as a storyteller. He, he said, you're really good at storytelling in your music. Um, he just said to kind of throw in some more acting skills with some of my ad libs. And instead of just repeating it like a normal MC, put character to it. You know, you're talking about a serious subject. So when you're repeating um, God, why, it, you know, it's like a lyric and you're repeating it, repeat it like somebody's suffering, you know, like, God, why, why is this happening? You know, and just kind of play it up a little bit. So it was really a, a good piece of advice and kind of brought the level up to, you know, my ad living in the music. So I usually go to my professional friends who, who are in the industry and kind of get their feedback. You're a lucky man to have that. That is a, oh, definitely. that's a great, a great sounding board right there. So when you, when you write, are you, uh, that how long, how long does that take? Do you, or when you go do it, like talk a little bit about the process. Do you go sit like at a Starbucks? Do you, um, is it something where you're like, if it's not happening, you just quit, uh, and, and put it down for a while and come back to it? Or how, how does, how does the writing creative process work for you? Yeah, for me, uh, it's, it can be different at times. It depends. Uh, sometimes I'm just, I have ideas and I'm passionate about it and it flows and I just get in and I start writing and I can write pretty fast because it's a subject that I care about or I know a lot about. And it's almost like the, the ideas come to you a lot more easy when you're really inspired to write. And there's other times where, yeah, you do get a little writer's block or you're just not feeling it in that moment and you kind of get stuck and it's better to come back because I've left projects sometimes for months and come back and all of a sudden like something amazing comes out. And I was like, I'm glad I took the time off because it gave me that mental rest, stayed, stayed away from it. And then you, you like realize another time that what your inspiration was for it. And it's like, it, it reinvigorates your, your passion for what you're doing. So I've, I've done that too, but most of the time I really sit down with a project and I just try to do as much as I can. And uh, normal life can get in the way. Sometimes if, if work gets in the way or another job or another gig comes up, it might slow my process a little bit. But when I have the time, I really sit down and I dedicate hours of my day just to writing and like, okay, these two hours are blocked out just to write and whatever comes out, comes out in those two hours. Well, I know that for me, like when I'm working on a creative piece, sometimes that, like you said, getting away and then getting some space from it and coming back to it, it gives me a fresh perspective. And, you know, sometimes you have that luxury. Sometimes you have to uh, 
force your way bust through and just kind of just bust it out and then, yes. you know, and just make it happen, uh, given a certain deadline or that sort of thing. But, uh, I do, I do like ideally to have let a, let a project breathe a little bit on me so that I can come back and look at it and go, okay, does this still look good from this? You know, once I get this fresh look at it. Yeah, definitely true. I, I agree with that as well. Um, definitely a good point to make. So is the same, do you say, is it the same approach for the music part of it? You know, do you, you said you get the music first. Uh, so do you have the music yeah. in mind before you have the, the, the music written or how does that, how does that work? So for me personally, I let the, the music itself inspire the topic sometimes, you know, if it fits the vibe of, of the ideas I have, then I, I usually select music based on that. So, you know, the theme of the current project is injustice. Uh, I actually am working with a woman who lost her son to gun violence mm. and law enforcement didn't uh, give them in really any justice. You know, they never really explained what happened. They just said wrong place, wrong time and nothing ever came of it. And I already talk a lot about social issues, so it was almost a perfect melding of what I do with, you know, talking more about the loss of life and gun violence and how it affects families and people. Um, so, you know, it's, there's some really deep songs. Uh, so I usually let the music itself inspire me. So it might have like a sad tone, and I feel like that fits a particular style or, or song. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of goes from there. So really, I let the music inspire me to write most of the time. And sometimes I do have, I like basic ideas and i find a song that fits that idea and i go oh this kind of you know meshes perfectly but most of the time i let the music drive the creative like theme of the song so do you have uh real like when as a as a creative person do you have somebody that you try to look at and go okay that's sort of my mount rushmore and i look at this artist and he's really great and i'm i'm looking to pick stuff or from her uh, and pick stuff from from them and then implement it in your own stuff or do you are you at a point where you creatively uh are your own thing and you really don't look to outside um influence or rappers that you go okay well i i'm i'm my own thing now i really don't need that uh cre you know try to borrow from here this person or that part person Mm, I think that's a very hard thing to do to not be inspired and take uh, so many things have been done. So many people have lived and I'm a history buff. So I really study everything I'm involved with. Like I studied the history of rap, where it came from, where it started, where, you know, where it's at now. Um, and I think you can't deny that you get inspired by certain people and your influence and your style um, comes from certain people. But at the same time, when you know who you are as an individual, you're able to integrate those inspirations into your own style. Because one of the things when early on when I started rapping, I started on the Los Angeles underground rap scene, battling people, freestyling. You know, you battle in the polling, you try to win. Sometimes it's cash prizes. Sometimes you open up for big artists, things like that. Nice. Um, and I made a name for myself that way. And when people hear my music, they compare me, but they always pull back their comparisons. Like, you kind of sound like atmosphere, but you have your own voice. You kind of sound like so-and-so, but you, you're, you're different. So I really like that. And I don't have a typical look of a rapper. Yeah, I might have tattoos and stuff. But overall, I just carry myself the way I like to feel comfortable. 
So I step on a stage most of the time when I used to do a lot of shows and the audience was always kind of baffled, like, oh, this doesn't look like a rap dude. <laughs> and I think that always worked really well for me because I grab a mic and I start rapping. And everybody's like, man, this guy can rap. He's rapping his ass off right now. So just that alone, I think, has helped define me as an individual and I kind of have my own style and persona. And you can hear the influences that have uh, inspired me. But at the same time, you still see the individual for who I am and what I stand for with my own tone, my own cadence, my switch of styles and whatever I do. It's very nuanced. I'll tell you what, I, l- I listened to what was on your website, really like Unsolved. I think that was a that's so much fun, but I know it's it's serious, but it's uh, it's awesome the way that you blended it all together. And I, I just I love it. You know, you've got this um, really well-known Unsolved Mysteries you know, the Robert Stack and all that, and you make it something new and, and, and it's your own thing. And it's, it's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That was a fun one to do. And, you know, um, I don't know if we mentioned earlier, we talked about it, but since I'm into the paranormal, my other areas influence, you know, everything kind of touches on everything. When I was young and getting involved in entertainment, I always thought the paranormal was going to be kind of the side thing to my main entertainment stuff, but it became really just melding into my comedy, my music and everything I do because many people are interested in it, like it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to grab people's attention when you're talking about something. So, you know, mysterious and unknown. Absolutely. So I guess, you know, you kind of answered one of my questions, which was when you were a kid, did you say, when I grow up, I want to be an overachiever. Uh, you know, because uh, you have so many things that you do and uh, you've got your hand in so many things. But but it was paranormal was your dream. Definitely. One of the paranormal stuff was a, a big part of my uh, my dream as a kid. I was a huge Ghostbusters fan. My mom went to see it when she, literally I was born like the week after she saw the movie. Uh-huh. So I joked from the womb I was a fan and uh, I always dreamed, it's my favorite movie of all time, and I always dreamed of having a degree like Dr. Peter Venkman, the degree in parapsychology. <laughs> and in 2009, I, I earned my degree in parapsychology. So uh, yeah, definitely started when I was very young. I had an interest for lots of different things. Um, definitely not the, the overachieving idea is not there. It's, <laughs> it actually comes from a darker place uh, why I'm so, I carry so many things. Um, I was actually pretty severely abused by my family growing up. And because I had no way to express myself in my home, I think music became my outlet. Comedy became my outlet. I'm not sure if paranormal necessarily was an outlet for me, but it was something that I was curious about, you know, just because I experienced weird things. Uh, but, but being an overachiever, I, I had to be on top of things or else, you know, there was punishments if I wasn't. So I became really good at balancing a million things. And I think that's why I do so many things. I'm able to balance them all. You know, you're lucky, um, and I don't mean because of the problems that you had, but you're lucky no. because because you you could focus that in something else. You took that energy and put it into something else. That's a that's a major feat for anybody that's went through uh dark times that they can uh, they can recover. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. You know, I've come to somewhat come to terms. I actually only left my abusive family at the end of last year and really came to terms with wow. what it was because you were, you're kind of indoctrinated and influenced to believe that it's normal. And then people start coming into your life and they're like, no, this isn't normal. People shouldn't treat you like that. And then you really start to see it. But yeah, um, you know, there's a song by Lupe Fiasco called Hip Hop Saved My Life. And in a lot of ways, I really think it did. It was an outlet. The anger I heard in the lyrics and in the music, uh, Eminem in particular, I connected with a lot. The way he talked about his mother, because my grandmother was my abuser. And that really, I wow. connected with 
having that female presence that manipulates you, abuses you and says horrible things to you. Um, So, you know, having those kind of outlets and then also learning how to do it yourself uh, definitely helped. And it's, it's, it was healing for me to do all this. So I, I know that earlier, uh, did your, your father left and you guys were, yeah. So you, you went ahead to live with your mother. So your grandmother, so it was kind of a a cursed blessing in a way, you know, took you in, took you off the street, but you know, then it, it wasn't all the, all roses. Yeah. And even with that, the story thickened because I met my dad a few years ago. He's in my life again. And come to find out my grandmother abused him and chased him away. So it it was even worse because I feel like I got my identity stolen and and lost someone who actually loves and supports me like nobody, no family member has in my life. And so it's like, you know, it's really weird to think that a lot of things, almost your life was a lie and you're finding all this out. But uh, luckily, you know, I'm out of it and I'm pursuing my dreams. Like, like you spoke of earlier, going at it every day, trying to achieve um, the greatness that I would love to see everyone achieve in their lives and go after, you know, and I hope to be an inspiration to other people. And not only, uh, not only that you, you're, you're rap, you know, you're, 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 you're basically trying to take care of other people. You're trying to bring people up and, and, um, and help them along the way. That's uh, that's pretty admirable. I think. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I definitely really would love to be a source of inspiration for for other people because I know what it's like to feel defeated and hopeless and like you're worthless. I mean, I'm I, literally uh, I'm still in the healing process where like things will trigger me and I realize like my abuser made me hate myself, everything about myself. Wow. And now I'm starting to love everything about myself and say, "No, I, my voice sounds good. I no, I have talent. No, I have the capability. Like I've achieved a lot in the last few years." So uh, definitely I'm growing and healing and hopefully inspiring others as well in the process. So what, ha- when was like the first time that you got in front of a crowd and did uh, performed and ha- talk well, like about actually, that. Take us through that sort of that given your background, I, I'm, I'm interested of how that happened and how you, I, I assume given, you know, some sort of self doubt that's manifested through your past it makes it very difficult to get in front of a crowd and, and, and perform. Yeah, definitely true. I was extremely introverted as a young child because not only was there abuse and manipulation in the home, which the abuse really didn't get it bad until I started growing older and questioning it. And that's when it really started getting bad. We didn't question our abuser when we were younger. They just isolated us from the world and we accepted it. There's like the world's bad. Only trust your family. And you're like, okay, fine. You know, you're, you're my family. I, I don't know. I can't question you. I don't know anything else. Um, but uh, in junior high, a counselor said, hey, you should do extracurricular stuff. Why don't you join choir? And I was, I was against it 100%. But my family is like, and the counselor in my family is like, no, you should, you, need, you should do it. This will get you out of your shell. You seem kind of quiet and shy, and this will help you kind of break out. And there was just something when I stepped on a stage and it was easier because there was a crowd around me in the bass section. It wasn't just me. So I didn't, the attention wasn't on me, which it was easier to deal with that way. Um, but when I was on a stage singing or performing, I just, I felt natural and at home. It didn't matter that there was a crowd there. Like that didn't really bother me too much. And then the opposite of what my abuser did, people clapped when I was finished on a stage. They didn't, you know, I always got backhanded compliments from my abuser, like, oh, well, you did a great job, you know, um, cutting the plants or fixing the car, but you didn't do this, you know, and found a way to turn it negative. But in my experience in the industry, even though there are mean people out there who want to like attack you, especially in the internet age, 
um, in general, if you're good at something, people will acknowledge that you're good at that. Um, so, you know, it was, it was kind of affirmation when you perform and people stand up and applaud and they say, wow, you sounded really good. Um, and that just pushed me forward. I eventually sang solo songs, uh, you know, eventually started rapping and acting too. Um, and then I think one of the earliest times when I got really into rap, I started hanging out in LA a lot and going to some of the underground hip hop clubs and, you know, freestyle battling was really popular. And I learned how to freestyle just on my own. I would just put on beats and rap and practice and try it out. And eventually my friends were like, you should battle, you should battle. And they kept <laughs> trying to push me. And finally we, we did, we went to some clubs and I battled. And even if I lost, I would get respect from some of the like, you know, veteran MCs who said, dude, you held your own. You may have not won, but you can rap, dude. You can hold your own. And so even with a loss, my confidence was being built because people were saying like, no, you're good, dude. You can rap. Like you have lyrics. Um, so that I think helped boost my confidence a lot. It's just like, okay, yeah, I may not have won, but I think w what I did with my life compared to my abuses, I felt helpless against my abuser. I couldn't fight them. I couldn't stand up to them. There was no way. They always found a way to turn it against you and become the victim, even though they're the oppressor. But I saw everywhere else where there was abuse and I, I wanted to stand up to that. And I think that was the difference with, between my household environment and mentality and being outside. So being outside, I just decided to stand up and take a risk, you know, where I felt I couldn't do that in the house. But once I got out, I was like, you know what? My abuser's not here to stop me. So I'm going to go for it. And that's kind of what pushed me forward. So when you, you was talking about how you, you've got positive reinforcement, I was thinking about the different things that you, you do. How do you think the crowd influences your performance? Does a, is one like one medium, if you're a comedian, does that, does it depend? Is there one, one thing that you do that the crowd affects you more than another, or is it all about the same? Or if you could talk about so that. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I think it, it really it pertains to me in a lot of ways. If we, I'm gonna go back into the paranormal a little bit. So my family is all sensitives, and we have all our abilities, and we're all of us are kind of good at reading people on some level. So um, people's energy affects me a lot. Um, and when you start performing, like you have to have confidence anyway. But I mean, there may be, like I said before, there's probably more self doubt and things like that. But I still like had to do it. Something in me drove me to get on a stage and perform. Um, so even if I started out kind of slow, maybe, or not fully confident when the crowd starts reacting, you see them nodding their heads, you see them like, Oh, that's a good line. It just, yeah, that energy affects you and your energy changes and you just start pushing and you feel that like almost an adrenaline rush and you feel more confident you start moving more, you start being louder and just kind of making your presence bigger. And I definitely noticed I did a small rally uh, in Santa Monica last Sunday night. Uh, it's the, actually the lady I'm working on the current album with. Uh, they did a mural of her son. Um, and we went out there and I, I performed three of the songs I had recorded up to that point. And, you know, there wasn't that many people, but I started drawing a crowd. People started coming around and people were like, dude, you can rap. And I'm just like, oh, okay. And people are just like, dude, you're good. And you're talking about real issues. And I think one of the best compliments I got that night, um, the father of this uh, lady's children is a, a, a legit Black Panther. Like he's 70 something years old. Wow. He's a Black Panther. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, you're going to be big, man. I could tell you got talent. You got skill, man. I'm going to pay attention to you. And I was like, I think that's better than a Grammy right there. To have <laughs> Black Panther tell you that they're impressed by what you're doing and the fact that you're using your talent 
to voice concern and issues and, you know, to, to show care and empathy to other people. Like that meant a lot to me. So yeah, energy affects me a lot, whether it's in a comedy club, um, whether I'm DJing, whether whatever, energy affects you. But also if you're, if you're a professional, you can't let it uh, defeat you either because sometimes a crowd will turn on you. Sometimes they're just not in the mood. They're <laughs> not, they don't like your material. How you carry, your, carry yourself will determine how they feel about you too. Like, you know, you know, man, the crowd wasn't on your side, but like, that was a really good set. Like I've done, you know, I've done comedy shows with the same material where I had the place on the floor laughing and they, there was lines for me after the show. And I've had them where it's like the crowd just wasn't into it. But you know, the people who ran the clubs were like, dude, that was a solid set. Like you were just comfortable. You were there, you were doing your material and like, you just, you look natural. So like, even with that, I still got compliments on like, again, that positive affirmation, even when it's not, maybe the crowd's not responding as well. You're still getting professionals telling you like, dude, you, you're good at this. Like you're good. Even with the crowd being whatever tonight was a bad crowd, but you did good. So I've heard that, uh, especially in comedy that, that sometimes you, you know, you can, uh, a set will play in one, one, uh, venue and in another venue, it just won't, it won't land. And yep. do you know, can you tell early whether or not, you know, like a crowd, like, can you, does it take sometimes like, can you go, Oh, well maybe I'll win them over. Or do you, do you like, can you read them within the first five minutes or how does that work? Yeah, you can usually read a crowd, at least me personally, I can read a crowd pretty well. Um, like I can tell you anytime I've ever DJed, I have never had any issues. I've never had a crowd say I played bad music or my transitions were bad or nothing. Like I always have like everybody told me, you know how to read a crowd. Everybody loved what you did. The kids loved it. The adults loved it, whatever. Um, but you definitely can tell, like, say, with like a comedy crowd or something like that, within the first few minutes, the way they're reacting to you and responding to you, you can tell, like, this isn't your crowd. Usually, like you said, the first five minutes is probably even less than that, because uh, the way I tell jokes is I'm a storyteller somewhat, but I also have punchlines within the story. So it, it's not like a build up to the punchline. It's more like a bunch of little punchlines and then the big payoff with the end punchline. Um, so, you know, the crowds, they're either going to react or not sometimes, or you get a little bit of a reaction and just not a big one. Like me, you may have had another close, but you can tell very early on how the crowd's going to be with you, uh, just by their demeanor. And if you get, if you're lucky enough to look at the crowd, sometimes you can even look at the crowd and be like, okay, this crowd seems like they're a little bougie. They may not like talking about, um, serious issues. They just want to laugh at maybe random stuff. Because again, like my music, my comedy is very much, I talk about social issues, hot button topics, the politics, religion, things like that. And some crowds really hate that. They're just like, nope, that's, that's what I believe in. You don't make fun of that kind of stuff. So sure. do you make like on the fly, do you, do you change your set or change your length of your set? You go, okay, this crowd, I, I, I'm, I better just, I, I better go a different route. Do you try to read them on the spot or do you go, okay, this is my set and I'm just going to work through it and. Is. Um, yeah, I've, I have so many years of material. I have definitely done it where I'm like, let me try some other material. This doesn't seem to be hitting. So luckily I can switch on the fly and try different stuff. And even as a, if you're a good comedian, just in general, when you're doing even your normal set, um, stuff happens. This is real life. There are people right there in front of you. People say stuff, people do stuff. And you have to react. You can even add, you know, I, I had it where a comedian before me had a joke that related to most of my act. So I was able to get on that stage and take a little shot at the comedian. Like, well, maybe if you didn't do that, I wouldn't have spit in your drink. You know? And I was like, 
And then, it, you know, you can, you can build off of what's going on right there in the moment. So I'm, I, I come from an improv background. I freestyle battles. So I do a lot of off the top stuff. My wife thinks my comedy material is funny, but she won't like laugh a lot, but she thinks my wittiness on the spot is hilarious. Like if I say random stuff and she's like, where'd that come from? I was like, I don't know. I just said it. <laughs> So uh, luckily, I think it's an important skill to have to be able to do things on the fly and switch things up. Absolutely. I, I remember, uh, was it last year, Pat and I and our families went and watched Brian Regan. And I oh, think yeah. the funniest moment is whenever somebody in a crowd dropped a, a bottle and it just rolled down the the uh, the aisle and it made this loud noise and Brian ripped off of that and it had everybody in stitches. It may have been, we were in tears. Yeah. It's- yeah. No, there's something special about taking something that's happening right now and making it funny. It really is because it's something that it may not happen at the next show. You're actually witnessing something that may never happen again at a show. So I think that's why it gets the reaction. It does. Cause it's so in the moment. It's so real and raw that you're like, wow, I'm witnessing something that may not happen at the next show. You know, that's a uh, very true. I, I don't think we can, I don't think there's any, uh, substitution for live. I live yeah. com- comedy, live music. It's just so visceral and in your face a lot of times. And you're right. Sometimes they're going to, you know, they're going to, the comedian or the musicians can take a left or right or zig or zag. And it just blows you away. You know, I remember I went to see a band, um, and, uh, I knew all the lyrics and then he sang it when it, the, the, the singer sang this lyric and I got it. I got it deeper than I ever had before in the live. And I was just, I was just, you know, it was kind of like that where you kind of float off the ground a little bit. You know? oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I think there's Definitely. also something about the group dynamics that makes it, you know, super oh, completely that feeding off. We were talking about energy earlier and reading a crowd. It's, I think it's the same when you're with a group of people um, I, I'm an empath, so I feel the group energy when I'm around people and, and places and things like that. And I think even though we may not be conscious of it, I think when we're around groups of people, whether we go see a movie in a movie theater or a live show, that crowd's energy affects you. It affects the performer and it affects the people around you too. And you, you feel that energy. That's why you're like, why do I like feel tingly when I'm laughing? And like, I feel like this big energy right now. Like, is it the performer? Is it me? Is it the group? Um, cause it really builds that up around us. I I'd have to agree with you. Um, so your, your paranormal team, I want to get a little bit into this. Uh, I am yeah. what you would call an interested skeptic. I, I love oh. it. I, I eat it up. I, I listen to a paranormal podcast every, every evening. I wondered where do you fit on that scale of uh believer skeptic? And I, I, I understand that we're also talking about, uh, this is a huge umbrella when you talk paranormal. So. It is definitely. I mean, for me, it's complex because I, I did years of studying and it's very important. Uh, and I thought beneficial to me to study psychology and human behavior and how humans think. Um, and I really love the scientific method. And we use a lot of the scientific method when we go investigate. So we try to go in without any preconceived notions that it's already a ghost or whatever it may be that may be there. We go in and we go, this is what they said. They seem genuine and legitimate about their claims. Let's go in and see if we can discover what it is. And if we can rule out everything um, natural that it could be, then we're left with something unknown. Uh, So I call myself a skeptical believer and all my team calls ourselves skeptical believers because personally, I'm a believer. I've experienced a lot of weird things in my life and there's a reason I believe. But I also understand that the paranormal is an experiential thing. If you haven't experienced it, 
you're not really going to understand why people believe it because you have no you have no reason to and that makes total sense to me um so we approach it very skeptically let's use the scientific method let's test it out and try and capture evidence and you know do these uh, experiments to see if we can capture it and if we can or if we can't you know once we decimate all the data and evidence we come to a conclusion of what it might or might not be based on the knowledge we currently have and you know what we don't know about it um so like i said my whole team skeptical believers we go in trying to help people because they sound very sincere when there's legitimate cases and there's not it's still a taboo subject nowadays even even though it's all the shows and podcasts and everything's out there in the open and there's a lot more believers i think than there used to be at certain points in history um it's still taboo for especially older generation people who you know come from religion where they say you don't mess with that stuff and there's a lot of different views on it uh but i think i i get a lot of respect because i'm not trying to convince anyone that it's real i'm i'm interested and passionate about it and i go about uh you know i go a certain way about investigating it and looking for it and i've had skeptics want to join me because of the way i approach it and the way i'm not trying to course I lectured at Chapman University for 6 years in the sociology department wow. and the first time I ever lectured there one of the students because I'm very free form with my presentations or my lectures and a girl raised her hand and had a question I said sure and she literally asked me this it was I've never been asked a question like this. she goes why do I trust you more than religion <laughs> and i was like wow that's that's a tough question all right it's one of the best questions i've ever been asked in my life and the simple way to put it is what i told you i'm not trying to convince you to believe anything i'm matter of fact telling you how we investigate the paranormal what we think it is how we would like to be viewed and how we would like to pursue it um you know it's not believe it it's real it's this is what we've experienced this is what we believe these are our theories on it and, and you make the decision you, you make the decision exactly. what you think the decision is for you not for me right so how many people when you talk to you go yeah, like a percent rough percentage you go okay i i really think that they're they saw something that or they experienced something that they that that is unusual and versus those people that are, you know, either they want to, they want attention or they mm -hmm. want, uh, they, they, you know, it, they're making up stuff in their own mind in order to convince themselves that they saw something or experienced something. Is it 50, 50? Is it more like, you know, three to one? What, what, what would you say in a rough sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely have the numbers for that, especially after doing it for so many years. Now we're not on a grand scale of an organization we're not a taps you know we're not like ghost hunters a tv show or whatever we we kind of are more to the, to the local area of southern california and we've done a few out-of-state things as well but based on our you know area of expertise and area we covered to be honest we've gotten i'd say 90 percent legitimate cases people made claims they had very um you know, distinct details and information. They seem coherent. We have a whole questionnaire to kind of get to the bottom of it before we take it to the investigation stage to make sure they're not exaggerating or, you know, some people have mental issues and they think they're seeing stuff and it's like, well, you need a psychiatrist. You don't need a paranormal investigator for this. Um, but uh, most people seem legitimate. I mean, there was, there's been plenty of false claims where people just have overactive imaginations. We did a case where they said they heard sounds in the attic and sounds in the walls. And as soon as we went in the attic, we found nests and holes and we, they had rodents that were going yeah. through the walls and doing all that kind of stuff. And we're like, you need an exterminator, not a, not a ghostbuster for this one. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, these people weren't like 
crazy. I think they were honestly scared, and that's why they didn't go into the attic and go look for this stuff. They just assumed they didn't know they didn't see it, so they assumed it was something supernatural and freaked out and were too scared to go in the attic, and were just like, it's an old house, you know, we're not sure, we're freaking out. And that's why we show up. We're not afraid to take that chance to go in the attic and look and say, okay, you know, we figured it out. It's not a ghost. But majority of the time we go in and either we validate the client's experiences through our own experiences or we capture some type of evidence, you know, EVPs on our audio recorders, um, weird lights, uh, you know, uh, like I said, personal experiences. We've had objects move. We had clients get scratches on their bodies while they're standing right in front of us. So, you know, you can't explain that kind of stuff away when it happens right in front of you. Um, so like I said, about 90% for our cases, for our organization have been legitimate and real. And then about 10% can be a misidentification, uh, overactive imagination, uh, you know, to watching too many movies and looking at a pixelated photo and seeing a face in it. Um, so, you know, stuff like that. So is, is there any pattern that you can see like on people that are, uh, that have these experiences? Is there, is there anything like an overarching uh, characteristics you go okay well they tend to have you know houses that have some some pedigree do they have is it the people is there anything that you can like go after you've looked at so many cases you can go oh well um you can build a profile a general profile yeah definitely it's uh, that i can definitely do that and we we compiled our questions now based on what we've encountered over the years and some of our main questions which have been in a very large percentage of our cases is people messing with witchcraft who didn't know what they were doing and after they did that all of a sudden their house went crazy they messed with a ouija board and after they did that their house went crazy so a lot of the times there's a very large percentage of our cases where somebody messed with something they didn't know what they were doing <laughs> And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Basically, that's what it boils down to. Um, on a, a smaller percentage, there's been like, I guess it's connected with that too. But like, oh, I had a falling out with this friend and she said she was a witch or something. And she was going to curse me. And that's when all this stuff started happening to me. Um, uh, I actually was an expert witness in a court case for um, a man in San Diego. I obviously can't divulge all the information of the case. But he was in a workplace and somebody made like a voodoo doll out of like parts in the in the car parts place and they put his photo on it. Wow. And because of my expert testimony, because voodoo is considered a religion, it was considered persecution in the workplace because it was based on religion. So he won the court case against the company. But wow. weird stuff happened to this guy. Parts on his car fell off that are impossible. They can't just fall off. Like you need to put a lot of work into making you know, like destroying certain parts of a car. Um, so that was a legitimate case. And it was really cool to find out that my expert testimony in the court case actually helped him win the case. So there's a, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff out there and I've experienced a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I did want to, I did want to say, can you tell us what, what's the website, your, uh, California, Southern California, uh, paranormal detective site? That's correct. Yeah, the website is www.paranormaldetectives.org. That's paranormaldetectives.org. And that's our main website. Uh, we have content, videos, pictures, you know, uh, bios of my team and what we do. So I, I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to bring that up because, you know, you're talking numbers a lot. And I noticed that you actually have a breakdown of numbers on there about, you know, and I, that's a wonderful thing. I've never seen that before to, you know, uh, what percentage is this and what percentage is this? I, I, I love that. I think that's amazing. Also, yeah. I, want, 
I wanted to make another note, which uh, I watched one of your videos, and you I so in another life, I I did a little bit of paranormal investigation years and years ago, and uh, my family did it, and it was very interesting, a lot of fun. But one thing you said in your video was, uh, we have thousands and thousands of hours of video that has nothing. And I mean, I, that is just, that's so much what paranormal investigation is that people don't understand, I think. Yes. Yeah. TV has really um, disillusioned a lot of people from what it is. When, when it became a huge phenomenon in reality TV, if you would have seen the groups that popped <laughs> up all over the, the country and disappeared within a month or two because they thought it was going to be them running around going, what's that? Oh, my God. <laughs> and you have to sit literally, depending on how, you know, there's different time frames you can set up your investigations for, but typically six to eight hours you're sitting around and nothing happens. You might get one thing happening in the night and it's exciting, but the rest of it's just dead silence. You don't get any evidence. You don't have anything happen. And then you have to go through all that footage and audio right. too and see if you maybe ca captured something you didn't experience while you were there. So it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's twice the workload. <laughs> Absolutely. So I uh, remember reading a, it's been several years ago now, there was a case in Gary and it was made like, it was on the Telegraph. I think I read it in, in the Telegraph uh, website and it made it through a lot, like tons of, of major new newspapers about this one house where uh, I don't remember all the details of it now because my, my members fades, but um, there was all kinds of weird stuff. Like, like basically the cops would go in and their cell phones would start working. The psychologist had problems with the kids that lived there. I mean, it was just like the most uh, dark and, uh, you know, like stuff out of the movies. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Um, never to the extreme that Hollywood and some of the more extreme cases. Um, I've definitely had some intense things happen. I have one case I remember, and I don't know how much time we have, so I don't know if I'm going to go through the whole case. But um, You talk, we'll guys. edit. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, cool. Sounds good. So we did this case in Bellflower, California. It was a house, two-story house, and it's cul-de-sac in Bellflower, California. So we're, we're hanging out, we're investigating. Literally the moment we stepped out of our cars, there was a metal chair on the balcony that slid by itself. Nobody was in the house at that point. The clients were outside greeting us and we're like, well, we didn't have our camera set up or nothing yet. We just arrived kind of, you know, setting up. Um, so we immediately put a camera on the balcony, went to set up our equipment and, and do everything. Uh, we're investigating. One of my investigators and the client's son saw an apparition of a woman and like a bloody dress covered in blood and uh they kind of freaked out um and they were like yeah there was definitely somebody there so that was kind of cool um we had a few sounds a few other things happening uh that was weird but nothing too major to that point um we were there for hours and you know like i said a few things here or there not major stuff so we took a break and what we usually do is we'll take some time if nothing's happening and let our equipment run in the property and go out and get some drinks you know uh, like, you know, just iced tea and uh, snacks to keep us up at like 4 a.m., you know, because right. it's usually late nights that we're staying up. Um, and we came back and it was literally on the dot 4 a.m. And we're just sitting outside in, in the cars and outside the house, you know, kind of giving it some more time. And we heard Native American chanting, like very loud, like, you know, traditional Native American chanting. I'm, I'm not doing it correctly, but, you know, just kind of give you an idea. Um we were all baffled. You know, it's 4 a.m. on a weeknight. People are working, other stuff. Like, there's no events going on for sure. So half of the team jumped in, jumped in a car and drove around the neighborhood. The other half was on foot trying to figure out where this came from. 
the parks were closed, the schools were closed, the buildings were closed. There was nothing around at 4 a.m. that was going on. So we get back to the house. We go back in and I realize my wife, who's part of my team, isn't there. So I look at my tech guy and I go, hey, I thought she was with you. And he's like, no, I thought she was with you. So we run out of the house and we see her drink sitting in the middle of the cul-de-sac in the street. But she's not there. And we're like, what's going on? So we, I started running down the block. My tech guy jumps in his truck and I see her standing on the corner. So I run up and I'm like, hey, where were you? We've been looking for you. And she's like, I was right here the whole time. And I was like, no, you weren't. We, he drove past it and I ran past this spot. So there's no way you were here still. And she's like, no, I was. And she's like, I'll just forget about it. Like, don't, whatever. Let's just go back and investigate. Like, you know, she, it sounded like something had happened, but she didn't want to talk about it in that moment. Uh, and I was like, okay. So I let it go. I was just happy she was there and everything was okay. She seemed all right. So we go back in, we start wrapping up our investigation. We're taking down all our equipment and the client's sister showed up like in the wee morning hours and she didn't say anything to us. She was kind of odd. Everybody got a weird vibe from her and she didn't, like I said, she didn't say anything. So as I'm breaking down one of the cameras on the staircase, I started bracing. It felt like, like a giant running back was like charging at me. Like that's the, the feeling I got. And it's this little petite Latina girl just walks by and I'm just like, uh, I got a weird vibe off of her guys. I have, and I whispered to one of my teammates, like, I think she's the source of what's going on in this house. I just, I get a weird vibe from her. Something's going on. Something's not right. Um, and I'll get to later why something wasn't right. But anyway, we're breaking our equipment, putting away everything. Uh, I grabbed the piece of equipment. I was walking around the house. This, the client's sister did not take her eyes off of me the entire time I was walking around the living room, putting stuff away, grabbing equipment. She was just fall. I went behind walls. She still, her gaze was on me the whole time. And I was just like, I don't know what's up with her. Like she hasn't said a word to us, but she's just like looking at me the whole time. <laughs> so I go to put a piece of equipment away in the bag. That's right next to her on the couch. And I catch eyes with her for maybe 10 seconds. And I may be exaggerating five to 10 seconds. And all of a sudden my chest got really tight. My eyes started to water. I couldn't breathe. And it was the first time I actually ran out of a property. I, just, I felt unsafe. I needed to get out of there. Something was wrong. Um, you know, I didn't know if it was a health condition or what, but just to be safe, I wanted to get away. So I ran outside the house. As soon as I exited the threshold, that, that tightness left and I could breathe again. And I kind of was wiping, you know, the tears because I couldn't breathe. And I'm just like, oh, my wife chases after me. You okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm not going back in there, though. You guys finish grabbing the equipment. I'm going to stay out here. Um, long story short, we went back home. Um, me and my wife fell asleep and we wake up the next morning and I had a circular burn mark on my chest where I felt the tightness at. And my wife's wristwatch was exactly 15 minutes behind the exact amount of time she was missing for. Wow. And what she told us was that uh, whatever happened, she was standing on the corner, everything went pitch black. And she said it felt like a giant animal was just breathing on her face. Like she felt the moisture from the breath. And then eventually she just appeared back on the corner. But she didn't move. She didn't go anywhere. But she vanished from this plane, apparently, and went to another one. So um, that's what she told me later. Uh, so that was crazy. And the, uh, the client told us that her sister may be involved in witchcraft. Uh -huh. Her and her coworkers steal each other's combs and hair and do different stuff. And I was like, this is why we think that she may be the source of the problem. If she's doing that kind of stuff and she doesn't know what she's dealing with, she could have either has something attached to her or it took over her or whatever. We don't know for sure, but it definitely sounds like something's wrong with your sister and whatever she's been messing with. So she's the source of whatever this is. Wow. That's nuts. Nuts. So, so that's, I mean, it, it, 
sounds like it, there's always something it's, is it less, is it more, do you think is more a person involved with something they shouldn't be as opposed to the, the house or the residence itself, the property? Uh, in our experience, yes, but uh, many properties also have, you know, long histories, tragedies, things like that. Um, and sometimes doing those types of things in a property that does have a history can awaken those things. If maybe they're dormant or maybe they're not too active and it kind of opens up the doorway for the activity to spike. So just kind of like, it's almost like opening the door, like the door's closed there. And then if you mess with something, maybe you don't know what you're doing. You open up that doorway and all of a sudden this stuff goes crazy. And it's like, Hey, look, they open the door. Let's go in. <laughs> so, so what's your remedy? Do you, when you're investigating, do you recommend anything for people that have problems with the, their property or somebody? Do they, you go, Hey, you need to talk to a priest. Do you say, Hey, or do you have any recommendations for people? Yeah, definitely. So it's different for everybody. I'll tell you in a large percentage of our cases, they just want validation. They're just scared. They don't know what it is. And they want someone like me who's done it for years, who's you know experienced a lot to come and like validate that they're not crazy. They are experiencing this. We came in and we experienced it. So right now, right there, you have a connection and they're not as scared because like, okay, it's not just in my head. It's not just me. Somebody else came in who knows about this stuff. And they said, we experienced what you experienced, or we captured this voice. We think it's this. We think it's that, whatever. So most of the time, people, most just average everyday people who might be a little fearful, just want validation to calm their own fears down. Um, there are extreme cases where they do want to get rid of things and they want things to calm down or it's scaring their children or they can't rent a property because everybody moves out because stuff happens. And uh, the remedies are different depending on the person. You know, we usually find out about them personally. Are you religious? Do you believe in, in religion or God or certain specific things? You may want to contact your specific pastor, priest, somebody to come and cleanse and bless your home. On another level, uh, my wife is indigenous, Native American, and sometimes we'll do like sage smudgings of the house to kind of block everything and push it out and put protection over the client in the house so it doesn't happen anymore. Um, on a deeper, deeper spiritual level, my brother is a medium as well. And like I said, I'm sensitive. Uh, we've done cleansings where what we do is my team will, will sit in a circle or stand in a circle, whatever, and stay close. And mentally, we build a wall and we push whatever's there out. And we've been successful at that. We did a property that the man couldn't rent his property. Everybody moved out within a month or two because just the activity. Um, we went in and uh, we we investigated and we caught some stuff. And then we did our, our cleansing like we usually do, sitting down, putting up protection over the house and pushing whatever was there out. And he called us and said whatever we did work. He gave us a very generous donation since we're a nonprofit. And he was so, he said, man, the people moved in. They didn't, they've never even said a word. They said, everything's fine. You guys really helped me out. So I'm going to give you a nice donation. So you guys can keep helping people. Um, so, you know, that was really great. So it all depends on the person. Most want validation. They don't want more than that. They just want, Hey, I'm not crazy. This happened. These guys came in and they told me it happened to them too. I feel better just knowing that I'm not crazy. And I think that's most people's fear is that they don't want to be shunned by society. Like, well, what are you, do you have a mental problem? Are you bipolar? You know, whatever people come up with for strange things they don't understand. So, you know, one thing you were talking about was smudging with, uh, with, a. uh, sage. And uh, one thing I found out about that was uh, the actual burning the sage, the sage smoke actually uh, kills bacteria in the air. It does as well, correct? All these things that we've done. Yeah, it's a twofer. Yeah. Well, I think think it's uh, some of the things that people may 
stick their nose up to. It's, it's something they really need to take another look at, which, you know, I like I'm I'm basically what you said. I'm a, I'm a skeptical believer. I, I've, I've seen some things that I think, meh, that's ridiculous. But then I hear more about it. and I go, you know what? Maybe not. One thing that I find very fascinating in the paranormal is uh, children remembering past lives. Have you ever dealt with anything like that? Um, not personally, although I've studied that topic, uh, as well as been told by other people, like, you know, when you, I, I get told I'm an old soul a lot. And when I was very young in my early twenties, when I was going to college, a lot of older people always said I had an old soul because of the music I like, the things I tend to enjoy. I'm a big history buff too. So I think that kind of adds to it. Cause I really study history just in general. I think it's fascinating. And I think having that knowledge of history, when people bring something up that's really old, even before my time, and I have knowledge about it, I think it just makes them feel connected to you. Uh, but I've definitely been told that I have an old soul and an old energy and certain philosophies that seem very old. So uh, even my wife, like I said, who's, who's indigenous, uh, has said like she she thinks she knew me in a past life. There's some familiarity we have with each other. Um, so I haven't dealt particularly with children who have um, mentioned anything from a past life. Uh, but I definitely have dealt with children who are very, uh, perceptive to things that, that like our normal kids don't really talk about. Like my godson, we went to, who's in Vegas, we went in Vegas and did a case and we experienced something. And my godson wasn't on the case, although he was close. We weren't that far. My, um, my good friend who used to be my head researcher, that's her son. And she filmed him and she said, Oh, um, what about JP? Did and he's like, Oh, he saw the ghost. And he said, well, where'd he see it? He said, Oh, it's on the ghost Island. And the way he described what we saw was what we saw during the investigation. Wow. And he wasn't there. So just his level of perception and connection to us, even though he wasn't near us when it happened right after the incident happened, he described what we experienced. And it's like, kids just have that. I feel like as an adult, we get so consumed by my work by knowledge and information and busyness that our minds are so full of things that we don't experience a lot of real life and with children since they're so young they're open to a lot more and that's why they have those kinds of whether it's, they can touch on their past lives whether they experience things that they weren't there to experience um, one of the things i really have loved and studied recently because they've done more studies on it is um uh, imaginary friends not being so imaginary oh, and wow. children having intimate details about these imaginary friends and in a few cases the parents were so freaked out by what their child said they they went to like the local city hall and the library and they found history that the child that their child's playing with actually died in that home wow. and that's the clothes they wore and that was their name and it was just like, you know, and the kids drew pictures of these other kids and stuff like that. And they're finding more and more that maybe imaginary friends aren't so imaginary because there's a lot of cases that have been studied now uh, pretty thoroughly that show that these kids have been playing with kids who died 50, 100 years ago. So I do think that there are a lot of things out there that it's science. It's just science we don't understand right now. Exactly. I agree. Well, at one point, and you know, I studied metaphysics, metaphysics and science were the same thing at one point in history. There was just a point that one sect of, of metaphysics said, well, we only want to deal with what's observable and testable. And then, you know, metaphysics said, well, no, we still want to deal with the things that we can't explain because it's interesting to us. So that's when they kind of separated and became you know, things that they don't consider actual science that's testable and has data and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of times people get to a point where they, especially as you, the more intelligent you are, the more you want to be able to control the world that you're living in so that you study in such a way that 
if something doesn't work in that framework, then you have, mm-hmm. you can't accept it. So you dismiss it because it doesn't fit in your framework. And so I think it's precluded a lot of open inquiries in, in a lot of different ways. I, I think it's, it's, it's too bad, but I mean, I understand how people work. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you've got a, you know, 160 IQ and you're studying something and you want to uh, have a solution to something, you want to study something that you think you can um, have some sort of control over and have a result. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully said, and it's completely true. I know that Stephen Hawking once thought, well, actually, he didn't think. He had a theory that when we were an expanding universe and when it stopped expanding, it would re- retract. And and basically, he described cups that fell off the table would now come back, and people that were born were going to be, or you would get younger. And so I'm pretty sure he dropped that theory, but my thinking on that is that was Stephen freaking Hawking. So this guy is one of the smartest people, uh, most clever people that we've ever had on the planet. There's a lot of scientific study even is being precluded by ridicule. People ridiculing, you know, your peers or a group that's somewhat your peers ridiculing you and preventing you from pursuing ideas and and study that mm-hmm. that otherwise would happen. So I mean, if you think of it, it had happens in science in general, then you know, metaphysics and that sort of stuff just hasn't, doesn't have a chance. Oh yeah, definitely true. Yeah. I think, and that's, that's a big problem. I think you touched on it earlier with what you, how you described it. You know what I mean? If it doesn't fit your framework, you kind of try and push it aside. And that's, um, you know, even in a science is almost like a religion in that sense, where it's like, we have a way of doing things and we don't want to accept outside theories or ideas because we, we like thinking a certain way. Um, you know, and, and that's, humans are, I think, stifled by that kind of thinking because you don't allow new thoughts and ideas to come in. You're like, no, this is the way and that's it. And I think you don't really grow and evolve if you don't think outside the box. Like um, the an idea I'm working on right now, nobody's done it. So people say that there's no way to do an original thing because everybody's done everything already and this and that. But I think it's because people don't think outside the box. You know what I mean? Like I'm working on right now a rap album about the paranormal an idea I have that people in the industry are excited about whenever, you know, COVID calms down and the world goes maybe somewhat back to normal um, uh, is to do what I call a ghost tour where I'm going to tour only haunted venues and do like a VIP experience where my fans get to investigate the location with me. So it's like to do something different. And that's a new idea. Nobody's done that before. So when you say there's no room for new ideas and everybody's done everything, it's not true. Actually, I haven't found anything like that. So I think that's what new theories and ideas brings and thoughts brings in is like, oh, look, I just thought of something that nobody's done. So that's that's awesome. That's a good branding, too, because that's and it's it's stacking things that you're interested in. You're putting together things and the more you can put together disparate things that you you can do, that separates you from everybody else. Yeah, exactly. I think that's I think that's what we're missing with with the way people market and do things is they want to like, okay, you have to sound like the next rapper, this guy, he's, he's the top thing right now. You want to sound like this guy, you know, but I think the the true people who have made their mark in whether it's history or Hollywood or entertainment or whatever have, have always broke the mold. They did something different. They stood out in a way that they grabbed the attention that goes beyond the one hit wonder, you know, the, the one big film, you know, whatever it is, and they've, they've solidified a career based on their originality or way of doing things. So I have a question for you, I, and I, 
I love that. I love that uh, train of thought. And this is kind of feeds into it. We're all, you know, we're true fiction. We're all about creativity. You've got loads of it. You can do something that somebody else has done, but you're Jean-Pierre. You're doing it as Jean-Pierre. That's different. Jean-Pierre is not just you anymore. Jean-Pierre is this thing. How do you, how do you deal with that? I deal with that. I guess I think it's really different than most people because um, in the end, I'm a man of passion and things that I love. And I want to turn that into my career. It's going to be what I wake up to every day, whether it's getting in a studio recording, filming a movie, TV show, whatever it is that I'm passionate about. Um, to be, I'll be 100% honest with you. I don't really care about getting recognition for what I do. I don't need a Grammy. I don't need an Oscar. I don't need any of that because the way I live my life to me is the most important thing. Like I said, the Black Panther who told me that my music was incredible was was as good as a Grammy, and I'm not even at that level yet. So, um, it, I, to me, it, it's in the end, it's all about passion and what you, your desire is in life to do, and that's that's why I do what I do. That's what I focus on. So that's that's what drives me. Is I'm a passionate person, and I never give up, even with the the mountains I've had to climb in my life. I just keep going at it. So. I got one last question for you. I was thinking about piggybacking on, on, on the previous is you, you've got a lot of opportunities that you, you seem to, to compile almost. And how, what do you think is the secret in order to like, for somebody that is wanting to do something creative in terms of getting those opportunities, how do you, what would you recommend for them to network or how do you approach that? Uh, so it's something I did in the last two years of my life. Um, you have to face the fears that scare you the most. And most of it is brought on by our society and the way we live. I quit a day job that was secure. I had medical benefits and I said, I can't do this anymore. It's soul crushing. I need to go after my dreams. My wife went back to school and quit her job. And that's what inspired me to go after my dreams. Um, you have to face your biggest fears. You really do. The fear that other people are going to judge you. They're going to doubt you. They're going to not believe in you, not support you. And you have to be your biggest supporter and your biggest believer. Um, when you take that risk, when you jump off the cliff, when you quit that job, and when poverty looks you dead in the eye, you still want to do it. That's when you know you found your passion. So you really got to face those fears. And I had a lot of fears to face. My abuser made me feel worthless. I actually hated myself most of my life. And I'm becoming a person who loves myself and believes in myself more than I ever have. So you just have to believe stronger than anybody's going to believe in you and just do it. Take the risk. You don't like your job? Quit that job. It's not for you. <laughs> Go find something that is for you. And so, it's weird how the universe, it's, I believe in energy and karma. What you put out in the universe is what comes back at you. Um, I used to be very negative, even though people did support me and believe in me. My abuser made me very negative about myself and what I could achieve and not achieve. And I flipped that now. And even with the quarantine, I said, you know what? I believe in myself. Nothing's going to stop me. Not even a quarantine. I'm, I'm doing it and I'm going to achieve my dreams. And that's, that's really what you have to do. Facing your fears is the biggest challenge. And, and that's what you need to do to, to get there. So when, when uh, and I, I like the idea that, you know, you put yourself on, uh, on, on, uh, you know, you, you kick the, the, the chair out from underneath of you, so to speak with uh, the regular job. But what, I mean, like, do you hit, you, do you put yourself out there in terms of like the rapping and that opened up, you, you talked to somebody that ha had an acting gig. How does, how do these networks sort of form for you to, to uh, provide yeah, these well, opportunities? 
Yeah, I definitely have to get into that. And there, that is a part of it too. See, there's a huge aspect of that for me personally. I've developed all this stuff over the years. This isn't like an overnight type of thing. I spent years writing. I, I took I took 10 years off of stand-up comedy and I wrote comedy for 10 years, even though I wasn't performing. And when I came back, I hit those clubs like nothing. I did one open mic and got booked at a major club because I spent 10 years writing. So it's really the effort you put into your craft. It doesn't even, it's not even about networking, really. The social media can do it for you. And and just going out and looking for opportunities, go to an open mic, go to a performance, audition for America's Got Talent. Every little thing helps you grow as an individual. But for me, it was years of hard work. I, I, I'm perfecting my craft as an artist. And when you, when you have the talent, the networking kind of comes to you, you know, you'll meet certain people. And maybe at one point, these people may not be part of the industry or, or that kind of network. But, but what happened to me recently is one of my friends got in contact with somebody big. That person got into contact with me. That person put me in contact with me. And all of a sudden, these dominoes fell. And I'm in touch with all these big people and all these big opportunities. So it's when you put yourself in a position where you can show yourself very easily to people, you'll, you'll find the right people sometimes by accident. So it's really about that's how I do it personally. And I know there's different ways of doing it. Um, I think, uh, and I said this before, uh, just, you know, to other people I've spoken with is I'm a people person. I do very well if I'm able to like be with you in person and talk to you. I know how to sell myself. I could probably sell you a cloud if I wanted to, (laughs) if I met you and had to sell myself. Uh, but I feel like sometimes social media, there's a disconnect that me personally, it doesn't work that well for me. But when I get on a stage, when I get personal with you, all of a sudden that connection is instant with me. So for me, I work more on a personal level with people. So that's that's just a personal thing for me. But uh, it's, it's different. So a lot of people can use social media to their advantage if they know what people like, the right demographics and all that. They can be successful that way. It's good to know your strength. And I think a lot of people worry too much about what they lack and not what they have. I mean, you've got you're kind of honed in on what your strength is. It's about positivity a lot of ways and in sharing that positivity. It's like the exchange of that positive vibe. And I think that's what you were referring to with your personal, getting personal with people. Yes, completely agree with you on that. And I've seen it work in my life more recently, you know, because I went through some very tough times because of my abuse. I went through depression, suicidal thoughts, all kinds of stuff at very low points in my life. And I honestly, at this point in my life, I don't think I can go back to that mindset because I really changed how I think about life. Um, When something doesn't work out, it just doesn't work out. Opportunities have always presented themselves. I think time is one of man's most difficult obstacles. We think that things have to happen in a quick amount of time or else it's not valuable. It was five years in between me having acting jobs and I did Ford versus Ferrari. And all of a sudden I'm getting all these other acting gigs because I'm just, I quit my job. I literally quit my job and the Ford versus Ferrari happened. Wow. And then all this other stuff happened. So it was that positivity is out there. And when you're on set, that's infectious to a director, to an actor, to everyone. And even I told this to other people, I, I go to do extra work now. And I get bumped up and featured. I just show up and I'm professional. I'm there. I love acting. I don't care if it's extra work. I'd rather be on set than, you know, be working a regular job. And it's like, hey, jump here. Come here. You've been really professional the whole time. Uh, I heard you do some, you know, uh, stage combat. I was like, yeah, I've done stage combat, hand to hand, mostly a little bit of weapons training. Cool. We want you to knock out the lead guy in this music video. Wow. Hey, Pierre, come back. We want you to make out with this chick for the scene because you're supposed to make the lead guy jealous and blah, blah. And it's, and it's like, how does that happen? I didn't go in there with that intention. I just went in there to do something I love and be part of something. And yet 
that positivity apparently was infectious enough to get attention from people and, you know, get me more work and more substantial roles. So that's awesome. Hey, uh, it's about time to to call it a day. Uh, have had a blast talking to you today, Jean Jean Pierre. Keep it up, man. Keep up the positivity. This is uh, it's been amazing. Uh, just dealing to talking to you and and learning about you. Thanks for hanging out with us. How can people check out your stuff and possibly contact you if they if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, definitely. So my main website I use is mcpierre.com. That's www.the-letter-m-the-letter-c-p-i-e-r-r-e.com. And that's my main site. You can find all my social media, all my music, even the paranormal stuff and my stand-up comedy. All that stuff is on there. Um, and then my social media handle is at talented. That's talented with the extra ED because I do so much. I decided to make up a word for all my talents. And you find me on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. Um, and then I told you the paranormaldetectives.org is my paranormal website, but that's also on my MCPR. So those are my main avenues that I communicate with my fans and different people. And you can find out everything about me on there. That sounds great. We're looking forward to your new album coming out. So uh, definitely might have to talk to you again about that. Hey, thanks for hanging out today. And uh, you have a great night and uh, a great rest of the week. week. Yeah, a great same west- you guys. Yeah, if I could <laughs> just you. say it right, a great West. <laughs> hey, you have a great time, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys too. Thanks for having me. I had All a right. wonderful time. It was awesome talking to you. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. Hey, you're too late.